You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Good afternoon, Toronto. It's Adrian Boucher from the Toronto Sun in for Alan Carter, who is on location to cover Game 3 for the Golden State Warriors. Big day for Raptors fans all across the country because it is actually North America's team. Alan will be joining us later in the show to give us a sense of what is going on on the ground and Golden State, how their fans are feeling, how Raptors fans are feeling. So we're looking forward to having a conversation with him coming up in the next half an hour. But to talk about some of the bigger stories that are going on right here in our own backyard, unsurprising to any of you, the ongoing fight between City Hall and the provincial government, the Ford government, once again, it took another step backwards, shall we say. Councillor Mike Layton is uh, you know, leading the charge at Queen's Park, a rally, uh, the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care. Parents, educators, they were delivering um, a petition calling on the provincial government to reverse all of the, quote, child care cuts at Queen's Park, including some criticism about a Bill 108. We'll, we'll explain to you what that is and why it's relevant to you. But to put some of this into context and, and put some perspective around it, I want to play an audio clip from Councillor Mike Layton and what he had to say about the child care cuts specifically. Families are at risk and children are at risk. And while we are fortunate that the government reversed the retroactive cuts, those cuts remain. They are on the horizon. They are coming. It seems like all the decisions this government makes are targeting one thing, kids. That's pretty intense. I'm going to bring on Toronto Sun's uh, Queen's Park columnist, Brian Lilly, to to give us a little bit of background here. Uh, Brian, the councillor is railing against these child care cuts. They, I, I want to separate this from Bill 108, but... Just last week, we heard from the provincial government that they were going to reverse these retroactive cuts that they were putting before the municipalities, city of Toronto as well. The right move. But now Leighton is saying that this is a hangover cut from the previous announcements. Can you give me some context here? So the, what the government ended up doing was saying, look, we, we will take away the retroactive nature because the cuts were retroactive to January the 1st. Uh, the budget wasn't delivering until April 11th. The municipalities found out about a week later, so almost a full four months into their, uh, into their budget cycle. And it's tough to say, okay, change all these programs. So, you know, myself, uh, the Sun editorial board, lots of people said, this is wrong. The mm-hmm. government back down on that but those changes and really they're funding changes what they're saying to the cities is we're not going to give you funding at the same level so let's say public health for example they were funding programs at 70 percent the municipality was funding them at 30 they said we're going to go back to the old model of 50 50 and that's what they're doing on a number of these programs. So that's what Mike Layton is talking about, is that these cuts will still come forward, these funding changes will still come forward next budget year. But look, there's so many problems with um, the way Mike Layton phrases it. One, to someone like him, who is aligned with the NDP, they only want one type of childcare, which I can tell you from years of covering the story, of studying it, is the least popular form of childcare. That is government-run subsidized institutional style child care. The number one thing parents normally want 
staying at home with their kids, having the lady down the street look after them, stuff like that. But those don't lead to union jobs, so Mike Layton doesn't like them. So, uh, what so, we're, that, so basically, that's part of what's going on. Okay, so let's just sort of dive a little bit further into that. If this is purely just a philosophical way by which uh, child care should be delivered, handled, managed, shouldn't the Ford government then be making their case? And if I can crawl into their minds for a moment, I would suspect what they would say we want to give parents choice. We want to give the individual family the opportunity to decide where their where their child care dollars are going versus some massive government plan that is going to be inefficient and, and, and not cost effective at all and then does not give a broader delivery of the system. Where is the Ford government sort of pushing back on some of this? Unfortunately, they, they aren't pushing back strongly enough, but they did come out with a child care tax credit. You can get, I believe it's up to 75% of your child care uh, costs back. So, uh, you know, it's um, it, it's a sliding scale. It depends on how much you make, how much you're spending. But they have this rebate for you. So uh, they should be pushing that more. It gives parents the choice that they want. But again, that doesn't lead to the union-style jobs that Mike Layton wants. He, he effectively wants uh, what the NDP have been pushing for for decades now, a Quebec-style government-run universal child care program. Parents don't want it, but union guys do. So it's, uh, and by the way, there were something like uh, 3,500 vacant spaces, according to the auditor's report on the Toronto daycare system. 3,400 spaces in the um, uh, city run system. It, it, but they're still claiming that, oh no, we need more money and there's waiting lists. Well, no, you got a lot of empty spaces too. So, and that's information actually that comes from the auditor's report. I mean, that's widely accessible and, and people can look at that for themselves and, and decide whether or not the city, for example, is, is doing the, the right thing. Let me just sort of pivot away from that story, which is going to be an ongoing concern. And I, I suspect that we're not going to see any changes from the Ford government on the funding model and the cut and the reversing anything in that regard anytime soon. So let's look forward then, Brian, to this other issue Councillor Layton is upset about. And boy, you think that he might be almost getting ready to run for mayor with how much he's saying right these <laughs> days. He's setting up for the next campaign in 2022. But so let's talk a little bit about this housing and investment model that the province has come up with. And some of the things that they're discussing is higher uh, development on the high rises can go higher. Building near transit where a lot of people are looking at accessibility. We're trying to get people out of their vehicles and into the transit system. They're expanding the transit system. It's a big project. They're tackling a lot at the same time. Yet Councillor Layton, once again, is saying that this is going to hurt children, but more broadly, it hurts developers. But I want to play for you what the minister responsible, Minister Clark, had to say in response to that. There are significant changes to create more housing supply. These two official plan amendments needed to reflect our government's priorities on creating new housing. But more importantly, they needed to reflect the significant investments we're making in transit. We're making $28.5 billion investment in transit, and we have to ensure that we increase density around major transit station areas. So, Brian, that's the minister, Minister Clark, talking about what so many Torontonians are discussing already, and that is looking at our existing system, looking at building up. Um, I know that there's been some backlash on some of the other big projects that have happened around Toronto. One blur was used as an example. People kind of got overwhelmed by how tall it was, but 
I mean, isn't isn't this sort of just the way we need to be going? We talk about a housing shortage. We talk about a crunch in the market. What's what's that issue here now? Well, they are going to be given, in some respects, more um, powers. So the province is going to remove some requirements, and that therefore they say this helps. Uh, developers. Developers will just pocket the money. Well, no, previous governments have laid costs upon developers. What happens when you do that? They lay the cost upon people trying to buy homes. Homes are unaffordable, especially in the GTA. I was talking with uh, one gent last week who told me the astonishing stat that 46% of people under the age of, I, I believe the cutoff was just over 30, still live at home with their parents in this region because they can't afford to go out and buy their own home because rents are unaffordable so they stay home that's not good for their long-term uh, financial viability that's not good for uh, the living situation that's not good for the economy um, you know people want to go out and buy their own home and of course and this uh, is in the backdrop and this is in the backdrop of course as you and I know today the real estate board coming out and saying how the numbers have gone up and up and up with respect to um, the co- value of the condos the uh, single attached homes everything's up yeah and, and i'll give you an example of uh, you know the costs go up two ways it's either a hot market which toronto has or by governments putting on cost years ago uh, dalt mcginty went in and said well for the sake of the environment if you uh, are building a home with a basement let's say you now have to have insulation from floor to ceiling on the foundation. <clears throat> it used to be it only had to go down a certain level and you didn't need insulation below that. It added thousands of dollars in cost and even the environmental experts said it did very little in terms of heat retention. But someone said it was a good green idea so they do it. Now the cost of your home or your townhouse or whatever goes up by thousands. Why? Because of a government regulation. So they're trying to peel some of that back. They don't like it. I will tell you there was another incident that happened here at Queen's Park today and Minister Clark is up at the micro phone right now uh, being scrummed on this and that is that Toronto submitted its official plan for the first time since I believe 2007 and the province rejected parts of it amended it and sent it back they're not happy with that but it is within provincial power uh, to to do that all right well the ongoing drama between the city and province continues Brian Lilly from the Toronto Sun thank you very much we look forward to reading you. your analysis about all of this in the Toronto Sun in the next few days or so I'm Adrian Batra from the Toronto Sun in for Alan Carter, who is going to be joining us shortly. He is going to give us a sense of what's happening in Oakland as Game 3 Toronto Raptors versus the Golden State Warriors gets underway tonight at 9 o'clock. Since I have the privilege of occupying his chair for the next few days, I figured, well, why not at the very least bring him on and join us from Oakland, where he is going to tell us all about the excitement that's surrounding Game 3 of the Raptors versus the Golden Golden State Warriors. Alan, welcome to your own show. Well, thank you. This is very meta. I'm guesting on my own show. I think this is fantastic. Uh, and we should make this a regular spot for the next few days. Give me a sense of, uh, I mean, of course, we have our Jurassic Park. We have people in Brampton. We have people all across Canada. Of course, Toronto, right downtown near Scotiabank Arena is going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people lining up and getting ready to watch Big Game 3 tonight. Alan, what is the equivalent that they have down there in Oakland? They have a giant parking lot, Adrian. They have a giant empty parking lot and a jack-in-the-box nearby, which is sweet. Uh, they have nothing like that. They have So the Oracle Arena is just basically in a, kind of an industrial park in Oakland, uh, and the Raiders play right next door 
and you may know that this is the last year that the Warriors will play at this arena. And next year they move downtown to San Francisco, and it'll be much more of a kind of Jurassic Park-like environment next year for Warriors fans. Uh, it's just it, it's just not like that at all uh, here in Oakland. Well, you know, it's interesting, of course, because this is now almost old hat for Golden State. You know, this is their, uh, they're in the finals yet again. Last time around, they swept LeBron James, but, you know, Toronto took game one. We want to hear a little bit from Kawhi Leonard, who talked about going into game three and just sort of teeing up what, what we can expect tonight. No excuses. Um, like, you know, everybody knows everyone's banged or bruised up at this moment. Yeah, for sure. We know that the everyone's playing hard. But, Alan, we also know that one of the most significant players for, for GSW, Kevin Durant, is not going to be playing tonight. Yeah, no, Kevin Durant remains out. There's some speculation he'll be back for Game 4, but definitely out for Game 3. The other big question mark for tonight is Clay Thompson, who was injured in Game 2. He says that uh, he's questionable for tonight. If he has a lot of pain, that he will not play. Uh, but I, he may play as well. He may play tonight, just not, won't be 100%. Let's hope he's not 100% because he absolutely torched us in game two. No, oh, I mean, the 18-0 run in the third quarter was just, it was embarrassing. And it was, it was a really sad state of affairs to watch because we had that game. But, you know, moving forward, we're looking at game three tonight. And Kyle Lowry, of course, he's got to step up. They're double and triple teaming Kawhi Leonard. So... Someone like Lowry has got to drain his shots. Green, got to drain your shots. Um, Gasol has to step up, which he has. Uh, but here's what Kyle Lowry had to say. You know, we watched the film and saw things that we wish we had back. And those, you know, first three minutes of the third quarter, we wish we'd had back. Um, knowing how good they are as a good third quarter team, we got to be a little bit more um, aggressive and assertive. Got to be aggressive, have to be assertive. But again, they're looking at taking on Kawhi Leonard and boxing him out, double, triple teaming him yet again. So what are we hearing from Nick Nurse, the coach, about tonight? Well, basically what Nick Nurse is saying is that this team is resilient and we've had troubles before. Uh, You know, we've gone cold on offense before. But I think that if you look at the third quarter, and you're right, it was horrible the beginning of that third But we were still in it in the fourth Mm -hmm. due to our defense, an incredible stingy defense led by Kawhi and also Gasol and Serge Ibaka. So if we can continue to play solid D, but like you say, hit those open shots when, you know, they draped all the Warriors all over Kawhi and he, you know, he passes out the outlet and you got an open look, you've got to make them. At this level in the championship against Golden State, you just can't go ice cold and hope to win. Yeah, I really believe, Alan, this is Toronto's turn. It's Toronto's year. You know, we should get ready to set up the parade route. But I want to get a sense from you what Golden State fans are saying about Toronto being in the final. I don't think they know we exist. Right. You know, I think there is a sense here of destiny for this team. They are so used to winning. Um I don't think it has entered their consciousness that they might not win. And it's certainly at this point where we're tied, I don't think it hasn't given them any reason to believe that they're going to lose. Um, I, you know, it'll, it'll, take, it'll take a couple more wins by Toronto to get them close to the brink before people here in this area, you know, the, the Golden State fans might actually think to themselves, well, wait a second, maybe we should 
pay attention to the Toronto team. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I mentioned this earlier right off the top of our chat that Toronto Raptors have become North America's team. Heck, I mean, I even put it on the front page of the Toronto Sun last week and that majority of the United States actually are rooting, <laughs> like anybody first as a basketball fan, they're actually rooting for Toronto to win and not Golden State. So I don't know if it's if it's just uh, an, an adversity to the, the West Coast or California or just this team in general. Steph Curry was a very popular college basketball player, very popular and has been very popular in the NBA. I don't know if it's an underdog thing. They just really, really want Toronto to take this over the top. Not only will it be great for our city, for our country, but for the sport of basketball in general in Canada, making us more competitive in, in other areas. But is your sense, though, you know, because they just maybe didn't even know that there was a Canadian team, that that actually benefits us? Well, I think you touched on some of the support that we have. You know, I, you know generally sports fans tend to like underdogs. Uh, and especially when, you know, Golden State has been at the top and so dominant for so long. I guess, uh, you know, it's kind of like, like the Patriots, you know, like, you know, have people like either you, you either you are a fanatic for the Patriots or you despise them. It, it doesn't seem like there's anything in between. And the Warriors are beginning to approach that kind of you know, area in the NBA where people are like, OK, fine, enough. Let's move on to the next thing. And now, of course, we are prepping and we're just hours away from the next big game, Game 3. Um, you know, I appreciate the fact that they don't have this sort of energy around the city that we do. Oh, heck, we have it all over the place. I mean, my parents are in Saskatchewan and they're going to a Raptors party tonight to watch the game. It's very exciting. Everybody's turning their backyards into a Jurassic Park, Alan. It's, it's everywhere. But um, other than what we've heard from Leonard and from Lowry... Uh, positive vibes? Are they feeling good? I think so. And I, I, I mean, this is a team, like I've said, that has been resilient, that has looked just awful during a number of games throughout this playoff run. You, I mean, you can point out a number of drubbings that we've taken from other teams that we went on to eliminate. And I think that what that says about this team is a resilience. Uh, and then, you know, when you look at the third quarter and we went ice cold, you know, the Raptors team last year with DeRozan, like that team probably folds, you know, but this team with Kawhi at its center and Kawhi, you played that clip from Kawhi. And I always, I always laugh like when Kawhi's, I'm a fun guy, mm-hmm. like when he's talking like that, that's the Kawhi equivalent of screaming from the rooftop, <laughs> yes. but he's just so absolutely calm and unflappable that and that centers the team. Here's a question I have for you. Because I know you put the Raptors on the front page of the sun. Absolutely. Do you believe, do you believe now, as someone who's programming the, that newspaper, that the Raptors have eclipsed the Leafs in some way? You know, I think that my, my sports guys who are the best in the business would have perhaps a different perspective. But right now, I got to tell you, as soon as we put those wraps on the front, win or lose, because, you know, I was once told by one of the best in the business, Lori Goldstein, never put a well losing team on your front page. But it doesn't matter. The nation is talking about the Raptors. So that, what choice do I have? Got to go well, for it. I, well, yeah, what choice do you have? It seems like every other every year at the beginning of the year, there's a Sun cover article about plan the parade for the Leafs. Yeah. 
You do that every yeah. year. Well, sure. I mean, there's always optimism at the beginning of the season, and then things fall apart. But, hey, we'll put all of our eggs in the Raptors' basket this time around. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Alan Carter, it was a pleasure to chat with you uh, from your dispatches from Oakland. I'm sure we'll be chatting again over the course of the next day or so. This is an exciting night. Go, Raps, go. Yeah, go. And don't, please, can you just leave, just don't destroy my radio show while I'm gone. Don't break it, okay? No, I'll just, I'll just stop being so good at it. How about that? <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Global News' Alan Carter joining me from Oakland, setting up tonight's exciting Game 3 of the Raptors versus Golden State Warriors. This is one of those sorts of situations that we talk about a lot on air. We talk about it in print. And it has to do with whether or not parents are making the right decision when it comes to not taking their child into the world of modern medicine to treat the simplest, most basic, straightforward ailments kids can get. And what's bringing us to this issue is there's a trial that is going to be starting in in earnest in Alberta. Dr. Ian Mitchell is the former medical director of the Alberta Children's Hospital, Lifetime Achievement Award winner for Canadian Bioethics. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, thank you very much for joining me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is a case of David and Colette Steffen. This is sadly yet another ongoing debate that we're having of uh, a parent not putting their child in the what we call sort of the mainstream medical system decides then instead to use some semblance of naturopathic cures in their mind. Can you give us a little sense of what's going on in this case? Well, I think this is, as you say, tragic. And we have to keep in the forefront that a child died. So we're dealing with a child who was very ill. Uh, My knowledge comes from the media reports and the media reports that Uh, the father claims he didn't look that sick. Well, what I heard is that Ezekiel was so stiff he wouldn't fit into his car seat and they had to lie him flat in the back of the car. So to me, I can't think of any parents who wouldn't recognize that as a very sick child who needed urgent help. It really is astonishing. It's amazing. You know, we kind of are having this unfortunate discussion these days, you know, with the anti-vax movement taking a grip on certain aspects of our zeitgeist, you know, even to the point where we're not having pets vaccinated, for example, all of these ailments that have been cured and, and dealt with through antibiotics and vaccinations for a number of years making their way through. And and I, I correlate these two issues only because these are decisions that are being made, um, Dr. Mitchell, by adults. And in a case with their son, Ezekiel, he had meningitis, which, as you know, eminently curable, very uh, straightforward path to recovery. You're a bioethicist, you study these things, you, you, are, you follow these from a professional perspective, but even just, you know, from a, from a parent's perspective, a human perspective. What is it that is going on with these individuals that aren't recognizing the, the fatality of their choices? Right. Well, I think there's clearly distrust with uh, physicians in general, many institutions, and with many figures of authority in society. So there's distrust, but there's also a failure to recognize 
boundaries. So there's no question we don't want every mild illness to be seen by a physician. Parents should be looking after mild illnesses themselves. But once it moves beyond a mild illness, then you need to get professional help. I'm very experienced and I can probably diagnose meningitis, probably. I can't diagnose it exactly without examining the fluid around the spinal cord. And I can't tell whether it needs antibiotics or what antibiotics they needed without a laboratory test. So even someone as experienced as me, we need a lot of help. We can't do it just by looking. In this case, the parents Googled and decided it was viral meningitis that would get better. It's, um, it tells me that their distrust of the mainstream medicine system seems to be extreme, really extreme. And unfortunately, their child died. Yeah, instead of antibiotics, taking him to a doctor, a nurse, any type of medical practitioner, they treated him with hot peppers, garlic, onions, and horseradish. And to your point, Dr. Mitchell, in this era of distrust of mainstream medicine, also being sort of propagated by certain celebrities, this is unhelpful, but I, you know, I'm a mom of a nine-year-old son, and, and I just sort of think anytime. There's, you know, a cough or a cold or whatever. Perhaps maybe we go over the top on on one extreme. But doesn't that suggest, though, if there's such an extraordinary amount of distrust, and this is beyond what we say, the the tinfoil hat crew, um, the mainstream medical system has some work to do on their end then, too, don't they? Well, I think we do. But but also, I think we have done so. I think they... uh, Many of the distrust is rooted in attitudes of uh, physicians and medicine in general in the 70s and 80s. I think there's been dramatic changes in how we deal with people, how we listen to them. Uh, I'm not going to pretend we're perfect, but it's a sea of change since the 60s and 70s. So uh, as far as I can understand, this family has had no contact with a physician, so the distrust goes back to an occasion with the father's mother. The child's grandmother had an unfortunate experience. The parents had no personal reason to distrust the system. It's just sad that we're even having this conversation yet again. And uh, unfortunately, we probably will have to bring you on and again in the future for yet another case that is going to be uh, going forward. But we appreciate your time, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you. Thank you. anything that we like to talk about in Ontario, in Toronto, it's beer, right? We got the Ford government, they're giving us buck of beer, and there was beer and wine sales in the convenience stores. But how about what is actually in your beer? Let's put aside the beer and the hops and your average lager. What if you found a butterfly in your beer? Now, not just an actual butterfly, but but the essence of a butterfly going into the brewing process of your beer. What if you found other types of animals and random things going into the beers that you you consume? Would you be into that? To break some of this down for us, I am joined by Crystal Luxmore from Toronto's own Beer Sisters. Crystal, thank you very much for joining me. 
Thanks for having me, Adrian. This is a story that originates from, uh, we always get some of the most interesting stories from Florida. And uh, this, of course, has to do with Florida brewers using butterflies in their in their process. So is this common? Is this a th- is, is this going to be a thing? Should we expect this coming to, um, you know, a beer store near you anytime soon? Well, I should clarify, they didn't actually use the butterflies. They worked with the Florida Museum of Natural History, and what they did was they took live butterflies and they swabbed, gently swabbed their wings in order to capture some of the natural yeast and microflora on the butterflies. And then they released the butterflies back into the wild and cultured up that yeast and used that wild yeast to make a beer. So no animals were harmed in the making of the beer and uh, no actual butterflies were used. So the whole idea of it actually came from uh, the University of Florida um, director who really wanted to draw attention to this endangered species of butterfly and part of the beer proceeds go to raise money for that research. Um, so I don't think we'll ex- we can expect it here. <laughs> okay. So a strange brew for a good cause, I guess, is what uh, is what you're saying. But, you know, it's interesting because it's not... It, I, I think, I mean, you would know this, being in, in, in the industry and talking about things and being a professional in this, there's always new products, new tests that they want to do to, you know, that I think producers want to make for enhancing flavor, doing something unique that people are going to talk about. What are sort of the, some of the more interesting and unique things that you um, have encountered? Uh, Some of the ones that have made the most headlines are culturing yeast off of like weird, unexpected kind of gross things. For example, uh, rogue ales, they swapped nine hairs off of their brewer's own beard and cultured up yeast and made something called a beard beer in Oregon. Um, brewers have also used everything from whale vomit to oh. putting a whole pizza in a beer no. to squid ink, bull testicles, lobster <laughs> shells, durian, cornbread, seaweed, shiitake mushrooms. You name it, you can pretty much throw it into a brew kettle and uh, make a beer with it. So those all sound disgusting, but I think that there's probably a market for it because, you know, people like these sort of craft brews. They like something unique. Um, I also came across one here that, uh, of course, for anybody that's a Walking Dead fan, there's the Walking Dead. Um, they have uh, tried to evolve their beers. They They do all sorts of bizarre things and put some interesting things in, in this one. Um, brains. Perhaps, yeah. There's a Dock Street Brewing Company in Philadelphia. A, a years ago, did the Walker beer, and they um, they used fresh goat brains, which is pretty disgusting, if you ask me. I didn't try it. I think sometimes with these beers, they can just be a total gimmick, and it's like super weird to try it once, um, and you can sort of hook it to a new season of a TV show, right. or just see how far you can like gross people out, and it brings people into your tap room to try the rest of your beers, perhaps. But in other ways, I think brewers are using wacky ingredients to create really delicious flavors. Um, for example, here in Ontario, Half Hours on Earth in Seaforth, Ontario, a tiny little brewery that you can only mail order beers from. They just sent me a um, their newest beer release today, and it's called a Root Beer Float Ale, mm-hmm. made with sarsaparilla root, root beer syrup, marshmallows, Madagascar vanilla, and milk sugar. Um, so I think those are great kind of ways to use culinary ingredients to make beers taste like things that we already love. Um, So there can be great examples and there can be ones that sort of fail 
in a really hard way. Yeah, well, the one that you just described sounds delicious, and I look forward to you coming to the station tomorrow to to bring us some so we can have samples. But mm-hmm. uh, in the meantime, Crystal, I want to thank you very much for joining me. Crystal Luxmore is a national beer writer and the co-founder of Beer Sisters, Inc., uh, along with her sister, Tara. You can follow them on Instagram at Beer Sisters. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Take care. I'm Adrian Batra in for Alan Carter. I'll be back tomorrow. Beer! Beer! Give us a beer! Oh my-